Screen Time with John Fardy. This is News Talk. Hello and welcome to Screen Time. I'm John Fardy and this is News Talk's TV and movie show. This week on the show I talk to Kathy Brady and Nora Jane Noon about directing and starring opposite the late Nika McGuigan in what would be her final movie, The Blistering Wildfire. Mark Royal reviews Michael Keaton in the 9-11 drama Worth, as well as the downright bizarre Annette. And the irrepressible Dermot Gavin chats to me about his favourite movie. This show is available as a podcast every Friday at 5pm on Newstalk.com or the Newstalk app powered by Go Loud. And it's on the radio at 6pm on Saturday here on Newstalk. If you're listening on the radio this week, we are on at 8pm due to the extended off the ball with the football match. Good weekend to you all. Hope you're doing well. I'm open on Twitter, John underscore Fardy, or you can email me, screentime at newstalk.com. I hope those of you who have children in your life uh, return to school with them safely. Uh, I feel like my life is, you know, a series of new lunchboxes are soon to be three-year-old, be three on Monday, uh, started preschool. So that was emotional for me. Not him. He was fine. He walked up the stairs without as much as a wave goodbye. Let's not get into that right now. Let's get into this. This doesn't make sense. Where do we start? At the very beginning. I got in the elevator with these two weirdos. Then Tim got in the elevator. Approximately 12 minutes from now, I will be murdered. Tim Kono's death has been ruled a homicide, and apparently one of you jerk-offs did it. I can't stop thinking about this. Neither can I. We should do our own true crime podcast. We're gonna go down there and look around for clues. You wanna come? Do I wanna break into a dead guy's apartment and go through all his shit? Sounds like an afternoon. Yeah, now that's only murders in the building on Disney+. Plus. It's on their star, uh is a channel kind of a channel it's 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 one of the subheadings on disney plus some good stuff on it not least of all this that stars steve martin martin short and selena gomez an unusual cast because you have these you know stellar actors and then you have this much younger albeit bright and funny selena gomez so it's quite incongruous but it's very good now you got a sense of it there from the trailer it's three strangers living in a fancy apartment building in new york who unexpectedly are all listening to the same podcast it's a true crime podcast and they kind of discover each other through that but then there's a murder or what might be a murder in their own building and they attempt to solve the case and possibly start their own podcast about the case it's dropping every week i've watched the first two episodes it's very good it's despite the fact that it's about a murder there's something very pleasant about it i think steve martin and martin shore together it's a great combination and it it reminds you of movies from the 80s and 90s or it's just like granddads here you know or there's two granddads here and that's not to do any disservice to selena gomez who's brilliant in it but martin short and steve martin together they just they make you feel happy kind of and it looks really nice it's kind of that upper east side manhattan vibe going on and even though there's you know murder and and darkness in it and the characters are slowly revealing what's going on in their lives it's a very pleasant watch so far i have to say kind of slightly gentle tv in the best sense of the phrase that's only murders in the building 
now available on Disney+. Plus. Yes, you're listening to Screen Time, News Talks TV and Movie Show. And we turn to this week's new releases. This week we're looking at the Netflix movie that's released this Friday, the 3rd of February. Worth all about the 9-11 Compensation Fund, uh, starring Michael Keaton. And also, uh, and there's no way to square this, a bizarre movie starring Adam Driver uh, in a musical. uh, The music done by Sparks called Annette. More of that anon to help me scratch my head. The one and only... Back scratcher himself, Mark Ryle. Hello, sir. Hello, John. Listen, let's start with Worth because, uh, well, there's equally uh, enough to say about both movies this week, but this is on. We'll save the best from last, will we? <laughs> yes. Over to you. Yeah. So it, well, we're coming up on the 20th anniversary of September the 11th, which is mm-hmm. kind of bizarre when you think about it. It is. Uh, so. Worth is, it's set in the immediate aftermath in 2001 and Michael Keaton plays uh, Ken Feinberg and he's a lawyer appointed by the US government with the unenviable and the morally questionable task of assigning a monetary value to the lives lost on that day um, to compensate the victims' families. And he uses this logical formula to set up the the 9-11 Victims' Compensation Fund and it's designed to avoid, I suppose, a class action lawsuit that would bankrupt the US government in, in billions in payouts. And at first, uh, Feinberg sees this as a major, major opportunity. But after putting his foot in his mouth over and over again in his dealings with the grieving families, he, he begins to realize that he mightn't have everything figured out. Yes. And they're, as you say, they're trying to come up with a form you're taking into account, you know, their salary, future earnings, dependents, all that kind of thing, trying to monetize what the actual loss would be. And he how, has much is, how much is the life of a cleaner worth? Exactly. And he has to get all this done kind of in the space of two years. Yeah, there's a there's a um a deadline that they're working towards or else, <clears> you know, it all bets are off. And I suppose it's going to be a free for all. And so, Stanley Tucci then is, I suppose, his his prime opponent in this, and comes he's lost someone in in the nine eleven attacks as well. Stanley Tucci is a, a widower, and he yeah he is is running this grassroots campaign um, called uh, Fix the Fund, which is you know it's it's standing up for the for the victims' families, and he's he's highlighting everything that is wrong in using this formula to um, to assign a monetary value. Mm. What did you think of this? I really liked it. I, first of all, I will watch Stanley Tucci in anything. I think he improves the quality of any movie he's in by a factor of 25%. Mm. And that, that's a quantifiable scientific Would fact. you say the same thing about Michael Keaton? Because I kind of would. I'm always there if Michael Keaton's involved. Even though he's had a few misses, I'll still always show up. He has, yeah, and he went. He was missing for a, a, a good few years, but yeah, no, I, I really, really enjoy seeing watching Michael Keaton. It, it speaking of which, this probably doesn't have the the, the bias of something like um, uh, Spotlight, but um, it's still it's still really, really good. He does. Uh, Feinberg has a Boston accent, and I think it's a bit of a stumbling block for Keaton. Um, it is a difficult accent accent to pull off convincingly, and I think at times Keaton struggles with it. Yeah, I'm I'm not sure about that, but that no. that 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 notwithstanding, what I really liked about this because I really enjoyed it was that this is like 
in a certain way, of course, it's hugely emotional, but it's a dry kind of subject. The idea of trying to tot up a compensation fund, like it, it's almost like a, a story you read about as opposed to one you make into a movie. Yet mm. it's so dramatic and tense mm. and you're, you're rooting for Keaton to sort it out. Like I thought it was a very clever thing to do, to be able to imbue it with such drama. It's funny you say that because those the, the 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 I think it does struggle a bit because some of the material is very dry and about politics and formulas and and legal negotiations and it struggles to make that compelling and I think um, uh, Max Bornstein's script kind of needed to work a bit harder to to you know to pull you into that i'd love to see what spielberg would have done with this well hang on a second may i interject i don't know why i'm asking because i'm going to anyway but did you not think the the fact that i'm glad you said it do you not think the fact that he meets the victims families and that's where that's where that it does get less dry and that's what brings it in and makes attention that's the meat. That's mm. the meat in this. But when I read when I read the synopsis of this at first, I thought this is the this is the type of role that's you know Tom Hanks bread and butter. Mm. But actually, it's it's not because there's there's this tendency in in these types of uh, U.S. legal dramas to portray lawyers as these saintly Atticus Finch types, you know, yeah. tilting against windmills and yeah. fighting for the little guy. And what's ca- compelling about this is that is that fine is is Feinberg's failings and his flaws and. He's. This is a guy who who starts out. He, he never doubted himself for a second, and now all of a sudden he finds himself in this position that he's mm. he's woefully unprepared for, and he's ill-equipped for it. But he takes an awfully awfully long time to come around to that perspective and that realization. And as far as Feinberg is concerned, his vision is twenty twenty, and mm. he knows he knows what's best for the victims in his head. But on another level, he's completely oblivious to how crass and tactless he's he's coming across to the families and i think that's the heart of the movie and that's where as i say the meat the meat is yeah so what would you say stars wise um i'm going to give this a three because it's it's very very solid Mm, i'm going to give it a four I found Good it compelling. Stuff. I was actually thinking I was I was on the road to five with it at times. To be honest, I found it really wow. really compelling. And I also thought Michael Keaton, the the slow realization that you see him act out, I thought was brilliantly done. You know, but anyway, mm. you give it a three. I'll give it a four. It's available on Netflix from Friday. It's called Worth. Here's a clip. The shock from the attacks in New York and D.C. reverberate across the entire nation. <laughs> what we're facing is a national emergency. We are proposing the Treasury Fund offering compensation to the victims. Ken, we'll have to negotiate all settlements. The victims and their families will be compensated based on economic value of loss. That's where the formula comes in. 80%. Any fewer come aboard, the lawsuits that result could crater the economy. payment for everybody. Yeah. My daughter's worth just as much as anybody in a corner office. My wife died that day, and everything about this formula offends me. Sorry to hear that. But we can't bend the rules for every case. Why not? Congress gives you broad discretion. But when 7,000 citizens ask you not to be treated like some numbers on a spreadsheet, you act like that law came down from Sinai. Yes, that is a clip from Worth, available to stream on Netflix from the third. I don't think you have to say stream, do you? It's just like a given. It's like giving someone a bicycle and saying, you can ride this now. I mean, it's, it's obvious you're streaming it. But anyway, that's what I'm 
I think you're safer just saying it's streaming on Netflix. Yeah, okay. We'll avoid confusion. So look, you you liked Worth, I liked it a bit more, but it was a good movie. Now Mm, we we reach we reach a strange impasse. Uh, I interviewed the band Sparks four six weeks ago in the show about a brilliant new documentary all about this band that only half the world have heard about, and they mentioned to me. And I mentioned to them how they've been trying to make a movie for years and now a movie that they wrote the music for and I think scripted as well. Or They co-wrote it. It's mm. now in cinemas from Friday. Mm. It's called mm. Annette. It's a musical. It stars Adam Driver and Michelle or Marianne, I should say. Marianne, yeah. Uh, Cotillard. So uh, would you like to say something about this, Mark? Not really, but uh, <laughs> I suppose I have to. Um, it is, uh, this is uh, the rise and fall of a love story between, as you say, Marianne Cotillard and Adam Driver. Um, Cotillard plays Anne de Frasneau, who is an uh, opera soprano, and Driver plays Henry McHenry, and he's a comedian in the Andy Kaufman mold in that he's, he's not funny. Yeah, and he's, um, it's like performance comedy. Yes, exactly. Yeah. And uh, it, it has to be said, a very nice uh, bathrobe. I wouldn't mind sourcing that for myself. Yeah. Anyway, I digress. Uh, so they are uh, a, a, a golden celebrity couple and they go on to have a wooden baby called Annette. And then once the baby arrives, so does trouble and driver becomes increasingly jealous of Cotillard and his his self-destructive tendencies take over. And that sounds like, you know, a reasonable kind of plot, you know, a, a couple who are both famous and one's more famous than the other. But the way it's rendered is mm. bizarre, to say the yeah. least. We should probably talk about the music. Yes, we should. There's so much of it. Um, this is not really musical. It's more on the opera end of the scale. Um, and I don't think there's any danger of Annette knocking Mamma Mia off the list of crowd-pleasing musicals. Um, at one point, Adam Driver sings a song from between Marianne Cotillard's legs. So, you know, this isn't Les Mis. No. Um, and with the like, with the exception of the opening number, to be fair, the songs... If you could even call them songs, they're they're abysmal. There is an awful lot of what I would call "sing what you see," and it's just it's just dialogue sung. I think the technical term is uh, uh, recitative. I think is the term for it, but um, it's 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 shocking. Yeah, I mean the mu- I I love the opening number. I mean, I didn't hate the music, but I did get what you were saying. It was just like you know, I'm going to sing this piece of dialogue now, and we figure out the melody as I'm singing it. But for me, what was shocking was just it was such a mess. Like mm. it was bizarre, and yeah. you know, at one point, I thought. How am I going to get through? I try not listen. I try not to eat late at night for the obvious health reasons. And I thought, mm. you know what? I'll, I'll get some crisps. That'll mm. help me get through this. I was literally comfort eating my way through this to keep myself yeah. awake and entertained. Like it's terrible, and it gives I'm, me no pleasure to say it. No, I was looking around the room for it for something that I could turn into a weapon. Um, the beginning, as you say, is it's quite encouraging, and the opening song is quite catchy, and it's done in this extended take with Ron and Russell Mail and uh, Leos Carex and Driver and Cotillard. They're all getting into character and sort of inviting the viewer in, and a lot of it is very theatrical and not in a bad way. Um, in fact, for the first thirty minutes, I would say I was I was on board. Um, it looks. N- gorgeous the colors are really beautiful and some of it looks like douglas sirk and there's nods to hitchcock and film noir and uh, carax uses a lot, a double exposures a lot but <laughs> beyond the first 30 minutes things get progressively more surreal and irritatingly pretentious mm. and that leads to annoyance and that leads to pure 
blind hatred. <laughs> yeah, it was very pretentious. Uh, and I felt it was pretentious from the get-go. Bar, bar the opening number, because they yeah. do this opening number with Sparks involved. And I thought, yeah. this is brilliant, you know? Mm. Now, let me play devil's advocate here, right? Like, I know you don't like to read other reviews, but I just wanted to check what other people were saying. And it seems to have divided people. Some people are completely with us, but others are, like, giving it four and five-star reviews. Do you think there's so much you know, intriguing use of, I don't know, storytelling mechanisms. Think, and yeah. I don't know, like, I I guess I'm asking you, why do you think some people are loving this? I, I don't know. I, I would, I would hate, hate to say that they're being disingenuous, but I, to be perfectly honest, I tried to see the good in this. Yeah. Many times over, I tried to reset and say, okay, I'm going to give it a chance. I'll get back into it. But there are certain movies and I'm going to, pick just for an example the shape of water um the people also loved but i i could just hated it but i for me the conceit was just so stupid that at a certain point my head just seems to rebel and and just says the hell with this and for me i think magic float and singing babies is, is a bridge too far and and that is before i've even mentioned the singing but furthermore at two hours and 20 minutes yeah. right uh, you you come to the realization that Carrex doesn't have a point, and Annette doesn't have anything interesting to say at all, and ultimately at all amounts to nothing. It's a complete waste of time, and and life is short, John. Yes, it is. It is. No, and I, w- I should say, because, you know, sometimes in the past there have been movies that you just haven't liked that a lot of people other had. And I've been thinking on my watch Once Upon a Time in Hollywood, which I loved. But, and I like Shape of Water, but I want to come in here and be the honest broker in this. If you I really like that fish, didn't you? Yeah, I'll, I'll be the Bismarck here, right? I mean, I, I'm completely with you on this. It, I, I, you're saying that like other people loved it and often there are movies out there that you just can't get but but i i think more people will not get this than get it or more people will not like it than like it because it's it's a mess and it's an irritating mess and i'm a big sparks fan so it it goes against every grain in my body to say it uh, just as well they're not on the show this week indeed indeed that could have been awkward tell me this what would you say stars wise um, I'm going to give this a one because it's it's really awful. It's an endurance test. Yeah. Well, I don't I don't give out many ones, uh, but I'm going to have to give one as well because, as I said, I try to eat my way through it, which can't be good. Uh, mm. It can't. I was be. looking for weapons. Yeah. So you mentioned. So Mark was turning violent, and I was overeating. So uh, let's put that on the poster, folks. We are talking about Annette, which is in cinemas from this Friday. I mean, if you're listening on the radio on Saturday and you happen to have seen it. Do let us know. John underscore Fardy is my Twitter handle, or you can email us screen time at newstalk.com. Mark, we shall do this again. Thank you very much. Thanks, John. Up next, the director and star of a great new Irish movie called Wildfire. Screen time on News Talk. Now you're welcome back to Screen Time. I'm John Fardy. Now take a listen to this. Kelly's okay. She's at home. She's home. You said you'd keep in touch. I thought you were dead. I hear your sister's back. She came home herself. Where was she? Where did the police find her? Is she okay? Lauren. <sighs> I'm in the north. I'm in the south. <laughs> your face looks familiar. Are you from around here? Yeah. I probably know your mommy. What's her name? 
Anna Cassidy. Oh my God, Anna Cassidy, was she your lawyer? Car crash, wasn't it? Had a war. Come about you ladies at Grand Age? My ma told me what you did. Our dad was one of the 26 year bomb killed. You don't spare me, mess up. What are you gonna do, huh? Yeah, now that is a clip from Wildfire. Wildfire is in cinemas this weekend from this Friday, the 3rd of September. Now, it's about two inseparable sisters raised in a small town on the Irish border, Lauren and Kelly, whose lives were shattered with the strange and mysterious death of their mother. Left to pick up the pieces after her sister abruptly disappears, Lauren is suddenly confronted with the family's dark and traumatic past when Kelly returns home after being missing for a whole year. With the intense sisterhood reignited, Kelly's desire to unearth their history is not welcomed by all in the small town as rumours and malice spread like wildfire, threatening to push them over the edge. It's taking place in, I suppose, post-ceasefire Northern Ireland and there's a whole thing about the troubles and and growing up, you know, ceasefire babies as they're called. People who grew up with the shadow of the troubles but didn't necessarily experience them firsthand themselves. The border plays a key part in the movie. Now it was directed by Kathy Brady. Lauren is played by the actress Nora Jane Noon who's done all sorts of things. You might remember her first role, a brilliant young actress at the time when she was in the Magdalene Sisters. And the character of Kelly is played by the late Nika McGuigan, who, as you're probably aware, died in 2019. This was her last film. You know, she had been in Can Cope, Won't Cope. She was, you know, a rising star. She was a fine, fine actress. This was her last film before her tragic passing. So it does give the movie an added significance. You can't help but feel that and think of what might have been. She is brilliant in it. Uh, her role opposite Nora Jane Noon, it's a brilliant double-hander with the two of them playing these sisters who love each other, who've gone through a trauma together. There was a screening earlier in the week in Nick's hometown of Clonus. You will know probably that she's the daughter of well-known boxer Barry McGuigan. And Kathy Brady is the director. They brought it to Clonus. I got to talk to the director, Kathy, and also Nora Jane Noon earlier in the week about Wildfire. So, Kathy, if I can start with you, there's a lot going on in the movie. And I know that sounds like an understatement, but, you know, the border, it seems like this kind of wonderful metaphor for what's happening in the movie, literally, in terms of the political situation, what's happening with the characters and, you know, crossing borders in our own lives and not crossing them and stuff like that. Did the original idea you have, was was it around like something along those lines or did you have a very clear story in your head about two sisters getting over something? Or how, where, where was the genesis of the idea? Well, unlike, unlike most films, we started with the casting. So the, the genesis of the idea was to do with the energy dynamic of Nika and Nora Jane and the capabilities because having worked with them, you know, separately before, yeah. and, you know, I, I knew that they had this real incredible ability to be, to be fierce, but like courageous in their vulnerability. And mm. you don't come across that all, that often. And to have two actresses that can access it so deeply, I thought, what would happen if you put them together? And that's really where we started. It was with that dynamic. Okay. So we, we knew that we wanted to tell a story with fierce women at the heart of it. And I had said to them, have you seen the documentary footage Madness in the Fastlane where uh, twin sisters had a, a shared psychosis and were found walking along the middle of the M6 in England 
threw themselves onto oncoming traffic and survived with remarkable fury. And th- that that footage really kind of shook us. And in a way, that became the starting point for the story. Like, what would what would take two sisters to that moment? How could it happen? Why did it happen? What is the shared psychosis? And we began with research and we built it from the ground up uh, based on, you know, our own kind of um, observations and interests. And it made sense for me, for example, to take it back to Borderland, Northern Ireland, where I'm from. And then when we started looking there, we realized, you know, there's there's so much trauma that's still unspoken and and still quite repressed. And trauma is a big part of psychosis. And, you know, so fact started informing fiction and fiction. We started searching for what what facts we needed. So it was never like I'm going to tell a story that's about a metaphor. It was always from this very honest, real, raw place. And then the world was sculpted around it. Yeah. And Nora Jane, so did Kathy come to you and say, I want to get you and Nika together. We'll worry about the story later, kind of. Yeah, yeah. And I think the both of us were were a hundred percent on board, just just knowing we wanted to work with Kathy and we wanted to dive in in that way. Um, because it's so rare, you know, and yeah. we were both really up for the challenge and, and completely um, you know, so excited about it and so um you know, from the very first day in the workshop, we were lit up mm. um, and, and so excited to see where this would all go. And what I really like about it is your characters, Kelly and Lauren, you seem like real Irish sisters. Uh, you really do. And I mean that as a compliment. I felt like I knew you or I've encountered sisters like you. I think I'm married to one, for instance. Yeah, in a certain yeah, extent. One. <laughs> <laughs> but I, I, I just mean it, it was so organic and, and, and believable. Did, did you have to work on that or, or is, you know, as Lawrence Livia says, you know, try acting? Was it just that you, you just did it or did you have to kind of workshop that intimacy? I think we found, you know, as as Kathy said, we found what was was natural and organic for us and for our energies and how that sparked each other off. Um, and as we created more backstory and more memories and we we played around with that and we did a lot of physical work um, to see how we sort of um, spurred each other on in different ways. Yeah. And it just sort of it just sort of formed naturally around that, you know, yeah. What's interesting, John, is like normally with casting, sometimes your cast, you know, they may only come on, you know, a couple of months, if not weeks before you shoot. Yeah. And so the actors are kind of having to play lovers or having to play best friends and they don't even know each other. So everyone's yeah. on their best behavior, you know, <laughs> and, you know, and they're really, you know, projecting an idea for a relationship. Whereas what Nika and Orgen had was forged over five years. And, you know, they challenged each other in many ways. They were like sisters because they were able to. To, it was like a push and pull, like, you know, mm. um, is, is that is that is that as authentic as you're going to go? And of course, that was, you know, there was a real honesty and, you know, sincerity mm. in that. And yeah, why they feel real because they were challenging each other and they brought out the best in each other. Yeah, yeah, they certainly did. And Kathy, I actually tried to Google your age uh, and I couldn't find it from a quick Google, which I think is probably a good thing because what does it matter? But the reason why I was trying to Google it was to figure out where you were in terms of the ceasefire and all that kind of stuff. Are you one of those people I read about who's described as a, as a ceasefire baby? I was born before the ceasefire. Okay. So, so I, I did experience, so I, you know, I grew up in, in Newry, um, so I would have experienced, you know, because I went to a Catholic school and 
how ta- <laughs> Catholic schools were in Northern Ireland, they often built the police barracks right next to the Catholic schools so that they wouldn't build up, they wouldn't blow up the police barracks. So I have memories of walking to school through um, massive concrete barricades with sniper guns pointing at us, you know, and, and that, that felt normal. And I have memories of, yeah, I remember we were sitting during an exam and uh, the the nun ran in, she, girl, she goes, girls, don't panic, but there's a bomb. And we were all delighted because we didn't have to finish our exam. <laughs> you know, and but you know what happened? We went to the back of the school while the army dismantled. The, um, it, was, it was a hoax. But uh, it, it, for me, it wasn't really until, you know, I... I went to Dublin later at university stage and I started talking about these stories and I realized, oh shit, this isn't funny and this isn't normal. And I realized there was still so much stuff that I hadn't really fully processed. And, you know, in many ways, my family wasn't touched uh, with the troubles. You know, I I didn't um, have any fatalities within my immediate family. But, you know, if you don't have to look that far within the community of Northern Ireland to realize that, it would be very rare for a family not to be uh, affected by the troubles in some shape or form. Yeah, absolutely. You know, this film, as you both are well aware, more than I am, has a dimension of meaning and significance over and above what it might have had because of the passing of of Nika. Is it strange? And I I can't think of another word. Of course, it's sad. But is is it odd to be on this promotional round now and to be talking about her in, in absentias do you know i think what because last night was our our launch you know and that was a clonus and mm. it was a homecoming event I, I saw it on the news with barry mcguigan yeah and you know i think what we've all been struggling is to find the words to communicate this um and you know it's kind of in one way i'm kind of like I want to shout about her from the rooftop and sure. I know what Nora Jean poured into this film as well. And so it's, it's, it's kind of, if we, if we don't give this film the best send off, well then it might not reach an audience. And so there's a part of us that just feels like we want to give it everything. And that way we know we've done all we can with it. And we're in this position now that cinemas are open. So you know, and, you know, we, we are getting people coming up to us and saying, you know, that film, that moment, and you realise, God, it is actually touching a nerve with people. And in many ways, the nerve is very raw for us because, you know, this film deals with grief and here we are, we're missing a, a huge part of our, you know, our, our like our mm-hmm. sisterhood, you know. Yeah. Um, but it would be an injustice for, for us to sit at home and not. Yeah. yeah. So it's a very it's very complicated. I can imagine. I can imagine. And as you say, it to be in grief yourselves and, and be, you know, promoting a film that deals a lot with grief. And Nora Jane, I presume, because, you know, this is, you've wrapped this a while ago and because of the madness we've all lived through, you must have really wanted to shout about it for a long time now. Yeah. Uh, yeah. You know, I think I'm glad of the time, though. Um, right. I think it gave us some space to grieve and to have maybe just that little bit uh, of footing to be able to do this um, in a way that feels more manageable than it would have been if things had happened straight away. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so, you know, there's a silver lining in, in many different ways. And 
Um, so I'm glad of that. I'm glad of that time that that we yeah. all got now. And now I think we are. We're just ready to to show her off. Yeah. You know, show her off and, and yeah. celebrate her and celebrate what we got to share together. And I don't think there's many performances like what you see Nika and Orjian do. I, I, I think it's so unique and especially as female characters, like when you think of like the dancing and, you know, I think the girls are breaking ground. <laughs> you know what I mean? And I think actors as creators, like, you know, I th- I think it's really fascinating. Yeah, this film as a watch, and I think it deserves to be seen on the big screen because the micro nuance of how they interact with each other is really fascinating. Yeah, no, it's it's a really fascinating relationship, and the dance scene is is incredible. It's funny at times, and then it kind of dovetails into something else. There's also a brilliant scene where where Nika throws a milkshake in a window and it, it it actually has a huge part in the movie there are some real standout moments in it but between the two ladies uh Nora Jane can I can I just ask you I realized something today when I was just getting my head together to talk to you you were incredibly young in the first film I ever saw you in the Magdalene sisters did you just have kind of I don't know often actors have a, a kind of youthful lack of fear and you just rocked up and were able to do that because it was an incredible performance about a profoundly disturbing subject and to be so young and to carry it off so well did you almost just have to take it on the blind at that age 100 percent, yeah, yeah. <laughs> i had no clue of the exposure or what that looked like or any of it i was just i was just um you know lost in the lost in that world and you know, you chase it ever since. <laughs> so the more you become aware of the business and all that stuff, the more energy you spend blocking it out and, and trying to get back to that that sort of innocent place of just um, being present. Yeah. Um, and, and Wildfire feels like my second Magdalene in that sense. And Kathy gave us that, you know, she gave us that space and she um, just held us and, and supported us and gave us huge freedoms that um, any actor would just be um, oh, over the moon. It's it's once in a once in a career kind of thing, you know. Mm-hmm. Well, that, that that's a lovely thing to say. And Kathy, then then just finally, like you've done this, obviously you directed uh, Can Cope, Won't Cope. I'm really curious to know what might be next for you. Well, I kind of feel like uh, you know I've kind of gone back to basics and gone back to research and. Um, I'm kind of looking towards telling a, a kind of a, a dark comedy. Okay. <laughs> and um, very different. It's set in the Amazon jungle. Wow. And, you know, it's kind of finding its foot and in fact and reality of what's happening there on the ground. And um, I'm working towards developing characters and, and, and sort of see what happens next. So I'm working with the same producers as Wildfire. And, yeah, so it's a case of watch this space. But it's, you know tonally it's going to be quite different set in a very different place because in in many ways I feel like wildfire was my trilogy because I've I've done small change and wasted uh and and, and wildfire with Norjane, which all were set in my hometown but I kind of feel like I'm ready to crack open and and tell the the international stories but I think I'll always be as rigorous as I can with character mm-hmm yeah, okay, fantastic. And just finally, one one tidbit. I'm living not too far from the border now myself. At one point, I think it's Nora Jane or it might be Nika, forgive me, is in a lake and or maybe they're both together and they're or she's telling one of the kids that you're in the north, you're in the south, every time she moves a few inches in the lake. 
Does such a place actually exist or is that creative license? It actually does. Mm -hmm. And the beauty of it was um, Nika would have spent a lot of her um, childhood in Clonus and Monaghan. And um, during our workshop, she told us about this lake in Monaghan called Dummy's Lake, and it straddles both sides of the border. And uh, she was telling us memories of being with her cousin and I'm in the north, I'm in the south and how they would even, you know, do it on a road, you know, the road markings, I'm in the north, I'm in the south. And it was such a powerful description of what it means to to live on a border. Yeah. Um, That it it just find its way into the film. Well, look, that might be a, a fitting place to end. I will be recommending and urging to my listeners that they go see Wildfire, which is on release this Friday in cinemas. You should go and see it in the cinema where it belongs to be seen. Nora, Jane and Kathy, thank you very much for talking to me. Thank you. Yes, Kathy Brady, the director of Wildfire, and Nora Jane Noon, uh, who stars in it, opposite the late Nika McGuigan. And my thanks to Kathy and Nora Jane Noon, and it's a blistering, powerful movie, Wildfire, that is now in cinemas as we speak as of this Friday. Up next, the one and only Dermot Gavin on his favourite movie. Screen Time on News Talk. Now you're listening to Screen Time. I'm John Fardy. This is News Talks TV and Movie Show. It's that stage of the week where we talk to someone well-known about their favourite film. I'm delighted to be joined by probably Ireland's best-known gardener and garden designer, the irrepressible Dermot Gavin. Dermot, how are you, sir? I'm irrepressible. Good. Mission accomplished. Listen... (laughs) Your favourite movie, wonderful choice. I, I love this slot. I say it every week. You never know what people are going to choose. It could be anything from E.T. to something from the 1950s. Will you tell our listeners what you've opted for as your favourite movie? Hitchcock's Rear Window. Why? I, I think it's a kind of dream of an ideal life where I would spend Saturday afternoons and Sundays just watching old movies on the telly or whatever way it'll never happen uh but i i like that idea i also like new york i like stage sets i like design so all of those sort of things and i like a little bit of scary wary but not too much would you just remind people and we have younger listeners who know very little of hitchcock what's going on quickly it's it's james stewart staring at people windows kind of yeah he's been a voyeur uh, in a way james stewart is a guy he's a journalist he's a photojournalist and normally he would spend his time in places like kabul or anywhere dangerous in war zones around the country he does a bit of sports reportage too Doing that at a car track somewhere, he has got himself injured. His leg is in a cast and he is confined to his uh, apartment in a sweltering hot New York summer. And he, life is playing out. His apartment is built, he's in, he's in the back of the apartment. He's, uh, I think all the action takes place just in one room but he is looking at multiple lives because mm. he's in this built-up environment in Greenwich in New York in 1954. And he's looking at another apartment block, a haphazard series of buildings which form a courtyard. And through his camera lens, through binoculars, through whatever, he is so bored that he begins to look at lives happening all around him. And it may possibly be the case that one of his neighbors is a murderer and it goes it, up in a very hitchcockian way from there 
Uh, maybe, but he's nosy. So who knows? Yeah. You know, yeah, he, yeah, he's yeah. just interested in everything that's happening. And we all invent these stories, don't we, of stuff happening. We all look at the neighbors. We all wonder who they are. We all make up our own minds about them before we've met them. Reality can be very, very different, but he'll never find out that reality because as soon as, as his leg is mended, he's off out on another assignment. His editor rings him and he wants him to go here, but he, he realizes, God, no, I've got the day wrong. You're in stuck uh, in your cast for another week. Um, so the frustration of um, our guy is... Is, is really, really tough. And all he can do is look out the window and avoid commit, committing to his girlfriend. Mm. You know, you mentioned you love the design and all. I was thinking, are you one of these people, given what you do, when you see gardens in a movie or, 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 or I suppose, design of any kind, that, does that really float your boat? Are you picking at that stuff when you're watching movies? Obsessed. Obsessed <laughs> with every bit, with every plastic rose that's been planted in his neighbor's garden, with the tree that's stuck in the corner, with the plants that people are growing, with the fact that some of these people go out and do some gardening, and mm. the fact that a murder weapon or a body part may be planted somewhere because <laughs> a little dog goes and starts digging something up, and then the dog is done in. Well, you're like the kid from The Sixth Sense, but instead of dead people, you see gardens everywhere and all the time, right? I do, I do. <laughs> well, and listen, I, can tell, I can tell if something is real or plastic. Yeah, well, well, that is a, a fantastic choice. And thank you for, for doing that. Is it a movie you return to again and again, kind of? Oh, yes, again and again, because it sums up, you know, a time and a place, you know, the subject matter is fairly gruesome, but I love the idea of New York um, uh, on a, a, you know, hot, sweaty summer. I love the idea of these other lives. It, it, it feeds into the voyeurism within me, how people live now. And yeah, I watch this time and time again, and rather awfully, maybe. My daughter is... But she's 16 now. But when she was five or six, she announced this as her favorite movie uh, wow. because I watch it so much. And she was, I, I don't know whether she was taken by the beauty of Grace Kelly and the dresses. I don't know if she was taken by the scariness, but it all added up to something that she really loved. Okay, cool. Tell me this. I want to ask you about Dirt, your new podcast with Paul Smith, but just en route to that, in this slot, you know, we talk to non-film people usually. We talk to scientists, weather forecasters, chefs, comedians, all that kind of thing. And I'm always fascinated by people who become well-known, uh, having set out to do something else so i'm wondering you know you're a gardener and a garden designer but you're also a tv personality and a personality was was that the plan or was it a happy accident or an unhappy accident it was a happy accident i wanted to i was very definite about what i wanted to do i wanted to make gardens but i wanted to make gardens that were different and there was no avenue to do that when i started my training so i would have left school in 1982 left uh, the botanic uh, gardens in 1988 after doing my three years of training people only wanted gardens that were pretty but i was watching david bowie on top of the pops or reading magazines like the face or watching the video for Michael Jackson when he danced down the street and the ground illuminated and I couldn't understand why in what I regard as the most creative of disciplines, uh, gardening and garden building and garden design, 
why we weren't allowed to take contemporary influence. So rather than media being my inspiration to get into, to achieve, because that was unachievable because there weren't gardening shows as, you know, each country yeah. had, had one and that was it. And none of them, I, I didn't feel any affinity with what I was watching on, uh, in gardening on, on television. So my thing was to take inspiration from media, multimedia, maybe from movies, from graphic design, and incorporate that in my work and to challenge myself and see if there was an audience for that. Mm, okay, so it was your passion in, in, that led you to end up yes. being on TV. It was always about the gardens, albeit doing it, it differently. It was always about the gardens. It was always about design. Uh, it was about architecture. It was about different types of inspiration. Uh, I also always loved teaching about it uh, because mm. I was inspired by it. I could, I had an ability to translate that um, inspiration to enthuse people about it. So I think it was a combination of of that that and been just naturally ambitious that led to you know working in this other uh, medium, which is media. Yeah. Is it fair to say, you know, it just popped into my head there. You talk about your passion and your enthusiasm, and that's something always people say about you. Are you, you're definitely a glass half full kind of guy. I can never imagine you being down. Now, I'm sure you have. We all have dark days, but on the whole, you seem to be the type of person who wakes up in the morning and you're glad the sun has come up. Oh, it's it's just such a joy. And if you are lucky enough to be inspired by something or work in the gardening area, you're always learning. You never stop learning. And it keeps you young. And if you take different types of inspiration or try and understand what other people are that, it remains vital for you. Yeah, I'd be very, I'd be kind of stupidly optimistic <laughs> to the point of being a fantasist uh, from, from time to time and imagining things that could never happen. And, you know, often feeling foolish because of that, but definitely optimistic. Yeah, well, well, I, I'm all for that, and I should tell listeners that Rear Window it was a it was a follow closely behind uh, Willy Wonka as your favorite movie, and I I thought that was that was quite fitting. <laughs> Listen, I want to ask you about Dirt. You and Paul Smith doing this wonderful, I suppose, gardening podcast is probably doing it a disservice because maybe about the earth is a better way of putting it. Yeah, it's about the soil, it's about the environment, it's about gardening, it's about garden design, and it's about stuff that goes on, you know, what we do in our day-to-day -day lives. We do an Instagram thing every evening between 7 or 8, every weekday mm -hmm. evening, where we answer people's questions. Out of that came this podcast called Dirt. We have a brilliant, uh, wonderful producer called Aideen Finnegan, and it's a thing that I've been uh, happiest doing because it allows me to work with and made and explore ideas and answer people's questions and let people know that gardening is wonderful. It's just great, especially in this country where we have a great climate for gardening, where mm. plants from all around the world can grow. But, you know, we also explore ideas and we can be a bit silly and stupid on it. And uh, uh, our head teacher, Aideen, doesn't mind. Not at all. Not at all. Well, his glass is always half full. His favourite movie is Rear Window. Dermot Gavin, thanks a million for chatting with me. I've loved it. Thank you, John. Did you ever eat fish heads and rice? Of course not. Well, if you, you might have to if you went with me. Did you ever try to keep warm on a C-54 at 15,000 feet, 20 degrees below zero? Oh, I do it all the time. 
Never have a few minutes after uh, lunch. Did you ever get shot at? Did you ever get run over? Did you ever get sandbagged at night because somebody got unfavorable publicity from your camera? Did you ever have those high heels? They'll be great in the jungle. And the nylons and those six-ounce lingerie. Three. All right, three. Well, they'll make a big hit in Finland just before you freeze to death. Well, if there's one thing I know, it's how to wear the proper clothes. Yeah, yeah. Well, try and find a raincoat in Brazil, even when it isn't raining. Lisa, in this job, you carry one suitcase. Your home is the available transportation. You don't sleep very much. You bathe less. And sometimes the food that you eat is made from things that you couldn't even look at when they're alive. Jeff, you don't have to be deliberately repulsive just to impress me. I'm wrong. Deliberately repulsive? I'm just trying to make it sound good. Grace Kelly and Jimmy Stewart there, or James Stewart. Jimmy, if you knew him, <laughs> in where window. They don't make him like that anymore. And my thanks to Dermot Gavin, who picked that as his favourite movie. And of course, Dermot Gavin's podcast with Paul Smith. Dirt is available, and it's going gangbusters, by all account. And you can hear that, of course, on the Go Loud Network, where you can hear screen time. Anytime you choose. Three o'clock in the morning. Turn it on 24-7. We're standing by for you to listen. That's it for this week. My thanks to Anne-Marie Kane who helped out on the show. I'm open all week long on Twitter, John underscore Fardy, or you can email me screentime at newstalk.com. Next week, I'll be talking to the director of Mamma Mia, which is quite apt, about something completely different. But Mamma Mia does come up. I'll bid you all a good weekend. Stay safe, take care, and talk to you next week.